The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. With my particular job, I have the joy of being able to work at home uh, three of my six days of week. And um, so on Tuesdays and Fridays and on Sundays, I'm home. Saturdays are my day off. And um, we don't have an office for me outside of our basement. And it's the same place where homeschooling happens. Uh, so we have an athletic mat that we rise up. And I've got earphones that I just put over my ears, uh, the same kind that I wear when I uh, use my chop saw. <laughs> so it, it helps keep the sound out. Um, but I was reminded this week, yesterday morning, as I was doing my devotion, um, how... How childlike I am in many ways when it comes to my relationship with God and how much I could, as a father, emulate the way he responds to me. So all of us, I would imagine, approach our relationship with God very much like my kids can often approach their relationship with their dad. Regardless of what dad is doing, whatever weighty business he has at his desk, the kids can run in and they don't even pause to say, excuse me. It's just, Daddy, Daddy. And they've got the biggest and most important thing to share with me. And that's how we are with our God. We just want to be able to pray anytime. There's earthquakes happening. There's children being born. And we want him to listen to, to us. Right? And he does. He does. Oh, that I wouldn't just be childlike in my approach to the Father, but that I could also emulate as a dad the way he's able to just meet me. The biggest things in the world happening, and then there's me. And he cares, and he listens. We have a God who does not immediately wipe out rebels. And because of that, we have a book. Even Genesis 1-1 was written by a people who would experience the fall. If Moses gives us Genesis 1-1, all the way up, Genesis 1-3, that world before the fall, the Bible's given to the people after the fall. And we even get to read those early chapters, but we're reading them as fallen people, which means God disclosed himself to a people that should have received judgment. And that's what the prophets are. They are voices of mercy. But it's often hard for us to get that glimpse because we open up these prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Hosea, Joel, Mephibodiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Hezekiah, Stephanie, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And as we walk through those 15, we feel a weightiness, as we should, because sin is weighty. But let us also hear a voice of a God who has entered into a relationship with his people, and rather than wiping them out, he calls them back. Back to covenant. Back to relationship. Open your Bible, if you will, to the book of Jeremiah. Last week we introduced 
prophecy, Yahweh prophecy in Scripture, and noted that the gods were speaking a lot. The demon gods, the things that should have never been worshipped, the spiritual powers that are alive and well in this present darkness, speaking and calling people to turn their hearts away from the fount of living water to a cistern that cannot ultimately satisfy. That's what sin does. The voices are filling all of our ears, calling us away from the path that is straight and narrow. Many go the broad way to destruction, but few are those that go the narrow way. And yet God continues to talk. So I wasn't quite done with my introduction to Old Testament prophecy. So what I'm going to do is just weave it into our introduction to the book of Jeremiah. And I anticipate we're going to be here probably three weeks. Today we're going to get a sense for his voice of judgment. Next week we're going to just walk through and get an unbelievable overview of the new covenant from every text that doesn't describe the new covenant in Jeremiah, that doesn't, sorry, use that word new covenant. And then the final week, we'll, we'll take a whole week and just bathe ourselves in Jeremiah 31 and consider the significance of the only text in all the Old Testament that uses that phrase, New Covenant. That's where we're headed. Jeremiah is the longest book in our Bible. It's longer than the book of Psalms. It doesn't have as many chapters, but it's longer by word count. Um... That's if you take First Samuel and Second Samuel all by their own. If you put First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles together as one book, then then they go over this book a little bit. Jeremiah's a book of oracles. That is words from God to a people, and then it's a book of narratives, which are also words from God to a people, but they're given to us in story form. And so there's narratives and oracles, and they, they work together. We've got three sets of things that sound more like sermons, and then we've got two units that are stories, much like we would read in the book of Kings. So the way that it works is, after the introduction, which we're going to look at today, you have oracle, narrative, oracle, narrative, oracle, and then the last chapter. So, oracles of judgment against Jerusalem in the first 25 chapters. Then we have some narratives detailing Judah's unbelief and warnings of exile. Then we get to the heart of the book that we all long to arrive at, chapter 30 through 33, which unpacks the everlasting covenant, the covenant of peace or new covenant. Then we have more narratives, the fall of Jerusalem and the punishment of Judah. Jeremiah is one of those prophets who lives through, he was preaching before the temple fell, and he's a priest at the temple. That was his vocation before he was called to be a prophet, he was a priest. And then he begins to raise his voice saying, you're saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you're proclaiming peace, peace. The Babylon's on the other side of the hill, and they're going to come, and they're going to wipe this out. No, don't listen to Jeremiah. Yes, I'm telling you, no, don't listen to Jeremiah. Death. And he lives through it. He ends up in a cistern, a prison deep in a well, 
Babylon comes and destroys everything, he, according to this book, he's called the weeping prophet because his soul was crushed by the weightiness of his task. Preaching, preaching, preaching to a people that didn't want to hear. And then to see God's own city, God's own temple, absolutely leveled. The very people that he had been preaching to, their heads cut off. Their legs chopped. He watched it happen. He watched babies destroyed by the Babylonians. And he mourns over the depravity. Women ravished. Warriors executed. And then, everyone except the poorest of the poor that survived gathered into groups, put in chains, and marched all the way to Babylon. But he remained stuck in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem for at least another six years. 586, Jerusalem falls. 580 kicking and screaming because God had said, never return to Egypt, never return to Egypt. But he was picked up and carried to Egypt by a remnant left in Jerusalem. And that ends our understanding of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. There's many different terms that show up in our scriptures to define what a prophet is. If you just look at the titles, you can get a better glimpse of of what their role was. The earliest name, apparently, that was assigned to the prophets was a seer. Like someone who sees something. And they were given eyes to see into the future. That's probably what most of us think about. When you think about a prophet, how many of you think about prediction, foretelling, looking ahead? Give me your hand. How many? Yeah. So that was one of the roles of the Old Testament prophets. They were able to see into the future in a way that most people couldn't. They couldn't, and it wasn't just wishful thinking or anticipation. It was Jeremiah tells them what's going to come. And Jeremiah would open up his mouth and proclaim to them the details as it would lay out in the future. He could see the future. But even more than that, he could see the present. He could look into the eyes of the human heart and assess whether there was true darkness there or whether there was light. And for the majority of the people, as he looked into their eyes, what he saw in his audience was darkness. Jeremiah especially unpacked in his temple sermon, which runs for three chapters in Jeremiah 7 through 9, we can read one whole sermon of the prophet that he gave on the steps of the temple. And what we read about his audience is that most of them, according to Jeremiah, were living in what could be called the matrix. One of the coolest movies I ever saw growing up. I didn't actually see it till after it had come out. I saw it in the early 2000s. It came out in 1998. The Matrix, I won't ask you to tell me who's seen it and who hasn't. Um, but The Matrix, contemporary movie, movie makers were pushing the limits in computer-generated action. 
And the plot of the movie is that the majority of the world thinks they're living in the light when indeed they're living in the darkness. But there's only a small group that recognize it. For the majority, all of their, very literally, they are in a massive warehouse type system plugged in by a giant computer. And they think they're living out their lives day in and day out, but it's all in their heads. But they think they're living in the light. But there's a small remnant whose brains have been unplugged who recognize how dark and how broken, how enslaved the world is. And so their mission is to save the world from the overarching computer that has everybody plugged in and unplug as many minds as possible to not only let them see the darkness, but to join with them in the mission of overcoming the darkness, overcoming the enslavement that's been set on all the world. Jeremiah is in a mission of helping to identify people's blindness. They're living in the matrix, thinking all is well, but they're being deceived. Really, their minds and their hearts are enslaved, and they don't even recognize it. But he has eyes, he's a seer, he can look in and see, you are in prison. And there's only one key. Return! 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 That's Jeremiah's favorite verb. And depending on the translation, it can be either return or it can be repent. It's the Old Testament word for repent. It's the only key to unlock the brain. Unlock enslavement. His audience is deceived. They think all is well when it's really not. And Jeremiah is called by a merciful God to enter into that darkness and proclaim there is an opportunity for you to move from darkness into light, from hell into hope. He's a seer, also a visionary. One of the key things that the prophets receive are visions. It's one of the main ways that God talks to them. Often, as we're going to see, especially in Daniel, the vision comes, this picture, this image, and Daniel is saying, what does this mean? And that's encouraging to me when I'm reading this is the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos. that's Isaiah 1.1 the whole book is unpacked as a vision and I read what he's saying and I'm like what does that mean and for Daniel God said you don't know what that means okay I'll tell you and then he would give the interpretation of the vision many visions are normal like you and I understand them and they become the very sermons that the prophets were speaking. But then other visions are filled with Lord of the Rings type imagery. Multiple headed dragons or a floating basket with a woman like Vanna. But she's black and covered in darkness and she's an image of wickedness. And there's these flying female winged figures that are lifting up wickedness and taking it away and casting it in the Northland. Images that are more difficult for us to grasp. And we're trying to say, what's all this about? We'll see some of those, but not in Jeremiah. He's called the prophet. Look in Jeremiah chapter 1 with me. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anatol in the land of Benjamin just outside Jerusalem, to whom the word of Yahweh came. The word of God came 
to Jeremiah. That's awesome. I mean, the God of the universe speaking, peons like you and me, hearing, Jeremiah, just the man. And the word of God comes to him. A word of life. A word of hope. A word of judgment. If repentance doesn't follow. So it came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. It also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. And until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Verses 4 and 5. So the word of Yahweh came to me. Notice, Jeremiah is in third person, talking about Jeremiah in verses 1 through 3, but now it's first person. Jeremiah is the voice that we hear in this book. The word of the Lord came to me. What did he say? Behold, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet. So that's the term we're most familiar with, a prophet. It, it means one who... The, the verb prophet, the, the root, seems to be to call, to proclaim, or to name. But we're not quite sure whether the point is that... He is proclaiming or calling forth what God has told him. So he is a caller, a prophet. Or is he one who has been called by God to a certain task? Or even is he one who calls and proclaims to God on behalf of others? Principally, the prophet has a role of an ambassador. He is coming from the heavenly court down to an audience that has been in violation to God's covenant. But what we're going to see is not only is he a proclaimer, a mediator between God and the people, he's also a mediator between the people and God. He's a prophet. That was Jeremiah's role. Interestingly, he's a prophet to the nations. See that in verse 5? All of a sudden, your and I, as the reader's ears, should perk. The word for nations in the Old Testament is the same word the New Testament translates Gentiles everywhere. He's a prophet to the Gentiles. That's what Paul was. But now we have an Old Testament Israelite prophet who's designated as a prophet to the nations. That means as we enter into this book, we've got Abrahamic promises on our mind. We've got the Adamic covenant and that God wanted to do a global thing, all of the world sins, but put your hope in the offspring of promise, not only the offspring of a woman, but now the offspring of Abraham. Through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We've been longing, waiting for this message. When is it going to turn? When are, when are we as the Gentiles going to take part in the purposes of God that he set forth for Israel? And the story has been focused on Israel since the early chapters of Genesis. But all the while, you and I have been reading, knowing that Israel, God set Israel apart for the sake of the world. And so our hearts rise with anticipation as we open this book. 
because Jeremiah is speaking not simply to an Israel, he's speaking to the nations. He's got a message for us. So, I hope that heightens your inner anticipation. What would God have to say to the Gentiles? He's a prophet. Man of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that is the means by which God speaks. And so men who hear and have a relationship with the Spirit are called men of the Spirit. Or we just get the plain general meaning for a prophet, a man of God. A man of God. Sometimes they are not even named. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, when God sends the prophet to Eli's house to speak to Eli about the judgment that's about to come, all that we're told is, a man of God came. A man of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the... Man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That may be a statement that is just generally for all people of God, or it could be directly related to the specific role Timothy has, because the very next verse says, I tell you, Timothy, preach the word. And I'm going to build the bridge between the Old Testament prophets and the elders at Bethlehem. I'm going to build that bridge for us today. But the elders at Bethlehem have been commissioned with a prophetic role that is directly in line with what God set forth through Jeremiah. The difference is that when we speak as if speaking the very oracles of God, we don't do so as if we're speaking Scripture, we point to Scripture. But the role of being God's mouthpiece and the role of representing the people before God still stands. I'll build that bridge. Man of God, servant of the Lord, a servant of Yahweh. Just turn over to Jeremiah 7 with me. Jeremiah 7. Verse 22. In the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Verse 24. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, day after day. So a prophet is a servant of God. That means he's not in charge, he's underneath and, and, and giving service to the great king. And when we encounter a prophet of God, when we hear the word of God through an instrument, We should not be revering the man above the ultimate one who has spoken. The man is merely the messenger. He's a servant. And his very role points him to the ultimate one who has spoken. And he's only a servant insofar as his voice aligns with what has been spoken. He's a servant of God, and then he's a messenger 
of the Lord. A messenger. So God has a message, and he sends out this man, this woman. There's female prophetesses as well. And they go forth and proclaim God's word. So here's some summary text. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. So I'm just going to, I picked three texts that pull a lot of these names, titles together. He warned them. He warned them. That's what we do when we see our children pushing their noses up, up, up against the circle of blessing. You know that circle that has on its outer, outer sphere, obey and honor. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. It creates this circle of blessing. So long as you're inside of it, all is well. But we have children that like to plant their faces like right along the side, looking out, outside, where could I go? What could I do? Outside that circle. And so we as parents come in and we give them a sting. It's a warning that out there is evil. Out there is pain. Don't go that way. Don't choose that path. The prophets come in in order to give stings. And it's a sting of love, not of hate. This is of a heavenly father who's reaching down and saying, Children, you're going astray. Please don't go that way. You're moving backwards, not forward. Come, follow me. I am where life is. If you choose to go that way, it's toward death. You're making bad choices. You're looking at the wrong things. You're tasting the wrong stuff. Don't go that way. You're hanging out with the wrong people. You're compromising your character. Don't go that way. And the warning is a gift. A blood-bought gift. So the challenge for us is not to be like Israel in Romans chapter 2 that has received such kindnesses from God and those kindnesses are spurned and they will become exhibit A, it says in the courtroom of God. I've given you kindness, and yet you are um, storing up for yourselves wrath on the day of judgment. So the kindness comes. You hear a warning. The kindness comes, and you refuse the warning, and all of a sudden, on the final day of the Lord, it will become an exhibit A in the courtroom, before the God the judge and God the prosecutor and God the policeman, he holds them all, every rule, and the fact, so they'll look back and they'll say, look, look, we warned you, Jason, and you spurned it. You refused to listen. Indeed, you are as wicked as we have declared, and you are as deserving of hell as we have declared. Your fruit is like Rotten figs, rather than healthy figs, says Jeremiah. And when the tree doesn't produce healthy fruit, it will be cut down. I warned you by every prophet and seer, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent by my servants the prophets. So we've got prophet, seer, servant, Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. I am Yahweh, your God, from the land of Egypt. I spoke to the prophets 
It was I also who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. Now, if if I could summarize the prophetic rule, I would do it with two words. Two Ps. They are preachers and they are prayers. And it's the prayer part that we might not always recognize, so I'm going to unpack that for us today. They are preachers and they are prayers. Now, in their preaching, they are foretellers and they are forthtellers. So let's consider the prophets as covenant enforcers, specifically as preachers. Now, let's just do a little test. Be honest with me. And I already primed the pump a little. When you think of a prophet in the Old Testament, are you thinking more of foretelling looking at to the future and laying out the future? Or are you thinking more of like what Pastor Jason did this morning, the preaching into the present? How many have more in mind the future when you think of a prophet? Okay. And how many have more in mind the present? And the rest of you, what? <laughs> Alright, pretty even, that's okay, that's fair. I haven't gone through and counted all the clauses in the prophets yet, um, but I have a friend who has. 10% of the prophets, only 10, focus on the future. Isn't that crazy? Only 10% of the prophets focus on the future. 90% focus on the present. And even when they're talking about the future, it's not designed, first and foremost, to have us lay out a calendar, but rather to instill hunger for God in the present, whether by means of hope for blessing or fear of curse. Now those two words, blessing and curse, what do those sound like? Deuteronomy. Heavenly ambassadors with divine authority, a divine word, and divine security. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 1. This is, I'm going to unpack Jeremiah as a preacher. Jeremiah chapter 1. Specifically, as one who has been commissioned by God with a word from God, and who has the security of God's presence. So we're going to begin in verse 4. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were formed, I consecrated. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And I said, Ah, sovereign Yahweh, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am a youth. Does that sound like anybody we've heard before? Moses. But Yahweh said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for to all to whom I send you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. 
Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Okay, there's a number of things that are noteworthy here as we look at that text. Number one, the word of God comes to him, and then he says, I've got more words that I'm going to give you, and I want you to speak them. So when the prophet engages in his ministry, he's merely speaking a word that has come from God. He's not speaking under his own authority. He's speaking under the authority of the living God. Number two, there appears to be the anticipation that there will be friction when the voice of God hits the audience. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Look over at verse 16. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. But you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Yikes. And I behold, now we're going to get a depiction of the audience. I make you this day a fortified city. Interesting. These are words of comfort. I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you. For I am with you. They shall not prevail. There's going to be this battle, and we read about it in Matthew 5, 18. No. Matthew 5, 12. Right after Jesus gets done with the Beatitudes, then he goes in and he says, they persecuted the prophets year after year up until this day and so they will persecute you, but blessed are you who are persecuted for my name's sake. Being a God follower and being bold enough to be a God proclaimer is not necessarily an easy task. In fact, we can expect confrontation. And the hope is that that confrontation will come. It's not that we're not going to have it. No, suffering will happen. But the confrontation will come and it will not prevail because I will be there to deliver you. That's the word that's given to Jeremiah. It's the same type of word that Jesus gave to the whole church at the end of his earthly earthly time. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just as they persecuted the prophets, so they'll persecute you. Now go! Make disciples of all the nations. You're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to teach them to obey. Teach them to obey. All that I commanded, and know this, I will be with you always to the end of the age. There's hope in that. Comfort in that. And we, Jeremiah, as we're going to see, is going to need to remind himself of the presence of God, the fact that God is for him, the fact that this evil, as deep and as hard as it gets, for him it becomes massively physical and not only spiritual. He gets physically abused and beat up 
He writes his entire book, almost. And then the king laughs in his face while he takes his penknife and slices that lambskin page by page through the scroll and throws it into the fire, thinking he could burn up God's words. And then God gives them right back to the prophet. But that was the kind of ministry he had, mourning over people that didn't want to listen. Some of you have those kind of relatives. They just won't listen yet. Know that God is with you. And he alone is the one who can unlock the key to their hearts. He's a heavenly ambassador sent with a message of God into a hostile area, but God is with him. So I say, he has divine authority, it's God's word. He has God's word with him. And then he has divine security. The image of a heavenly ambassador. Remember in the book of Job how the book opens with this vision of the heavenly court. The heavenly court and Yahweh is seated on his throne and all the sons of God were gathering around the throne and the Satan, the accuser, was there as well. The image is that the prophet, even though he's a man like all of us, he gets to actually see and participate in the heavenly council. He's commissioned out of there. Notice Jeremiah 23. I did not send the prophets. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. These are the false prophets who don't really have God's word. I didn't speak to them, God says, yet they're still prophesying. But if they had stood in my council, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. But false prophets haven't been part of this council, but Jeremiah has. And he has a role, and as we read this book, we should feel it, asking God as we read through it, God, I am a redeemed, grafted-in Israelite. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, who has been circumcised of the heart by the Spirit. Last verse of Romans 2. God, I've been grafted in. You started a branch, and now I'm a Gentile who's fitting into this. I'm like a wild olive who's been grafted into the domesticated olive that started back there with with Abraham. And I want to have a better hearing, a better seeing than any of Jeremiah's audience did. By your grace, God, as he calls me to turn from evil, show me where the evil is in my heart that I can turn to you. That should be our prayer as a believer working through a book like Jeremiah and our devotions. When we see what he was doing, when we get those signals, what his intention was, we should say, God, make that happen in me. If there's any evil way in me, disclose it that I might give it over to Christ. And then all the while, all the while, this is powerful, remembering that we will never conquer sin. No sin will ever be conquered unless it's already been pardoned. That is, we don't get fuel to fight sin apart from the work of Christ at the cross. A God who is already in spite of who we are, and in spite of what we do, 100% for us. The only sin we can conquer is pardon sin. And so we pray 
to the one who breaks the power. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He breaks the power of canceled sin. That is, the sin's already been canceled. And yet Satan wants to make us think he has power still. It has power. No, it doesn't. And all of a sudden, we have a a way to read these Old Testament prophets in a way that most of Jeremiah's audience did not. Not only are they heavenly ambassadors, they are covenantal administrators. Look at verses, chapter 1, verse 9. Covenant is about relationship. So, when we read the prophets, we should hear a God calling the reader to relationship. Then Yahweh put out his hand and touched my mouth, and Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. What's he going to say? If I was to look at any verse in all of Jeremiah to summarize the main point of the whole book, it would be verse 10. Verse 10, I think, gives us a synthesis of the entire message. Everything in the book can fall into what we read in verse 10. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. To what end? To pluck up and to break down. To destroy and to overthrow to build, and to plant. We could go to every sermon in the prophets and put it into one of these categories. It's either a pluck up and break down message, a destroy and overthrow message, or a build-up-and-plant message. That is, it's about indictment, preaching against sin, a sin that finds its definition in the covenant. Jeremiah is merely a covenantal preacher. He has his Bible open to Deuteronomy, and he's calling people back to the book. You will show that in just a second. You've sinned. You've gone astray. You're not loving God with all your heart. Your hearts are still uncircumcised. Here, don't be stubborn anymore. So not only does he preach against sin, he also teaches and instructs. So you have the pluck up and break down, and then you've got the building. And there are two sides of the same coin. You're sinning, here's what you should be doing. And, and they're going back and forth. And what he's calling them to do is heed the covenant, and what he's saying they haven't done is they've broken the covenant. To destroy and overthrow. Judgment and warning for the day. I'm seeing a double a double a double image that Jeremiah uses. You've got the security of a temple of a city, and then you have the productivity of a garden. And 
you also have, so I'm thinking about the images that he uses. He uses building imagery, he uses pottery imagery, and then he also uses um, fruitfulness, like the fig tree. And so all of those, I think, are playing in here, whether the breaking down is the breaking of a city or the breaking of a pot. The planting is the, is the, the planting of fruit, of a fruit tree that's supposed to flourish, and the plucking up of a tree that is not producing. And the amazing thing is that this is a message not only for Israel, but for the nation, suggesting that even though God has this relationship with Israel, all the world is accountable to God. So Jeremiah comes in as a prophet of the Israelite covenant, but he also seems to come in as a prophet of the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant. Because all the world is in that covenant relationship with God. He's the creator of all things. And as a prophet to the nations, He's coming in order to see the ultimate reversal of that mess. Not only in Israel, but on a global scale. So, he announces judgment, and he teaches, promise, he teaches and promises restoration. So when I look at those three, I, I break them down into these categories. Indictment. And all the sermons, I would suggest, all the sermon portions of the prophets you can put into these categories. They're either saying, this is saying, this is what you, how you've sinned. And they've got their Bibles open pointing to it. That's the statement of the offense or indictment. Number two, they warn or declare, warn that judgment day is coming or declare more judgment. They give instruction. And again, they've got their Bible open. They're just reading through Moses and saying, this is what you should have done. You should have cared for the poor. You should have seen the widow in her distress. You shouldn't have exploited the weak. You should have loved your wife. And finally, he gives promises of hope. Now, one of the I think most significant elements that will help you if you are reading the prophet is to recognize that he's indeed a covenant enforcer. Just like we read the history of the covenant in light of the covenant, we read the sermons of the covenant in light of the covenant. The prophets have their Bibles open, and when we get into the texts that read about promises of future blessing, restoration blessing, or when we read about the promises of Judgment Day that are coming, all the specifics can be found right in Leviticus 26 or in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. So that's why I've included the extra sheet for you. I gave it to you last week, gave it to you again this week. If you just open up to the, the back page and you look at that chart, what I've done is... Um, one of my former professors had gone through and broken down all the blessings and all the curses, and I've gone through and just added into that the restoration blessings. And so what this does is it helps me remember that these prophets are merely preachers, covenant preachers. So when I read a judgment oracle, 
I'll go back, I'll pull out my list, and I'll say, where did Moses say that this judgment, when did he talk about this kind of a judgment? And I haven't found any instances yet in the prophets where Moses isn't being echoed. Where Moses wasn't already anticipating this kind of judgment, or when he's talking about things like New Covenant blessings, all of those Moses himself already anticipated. So, as we walk through the prophets, I hope we'll see those. I encourage you to keep that red sheet, or last week's white sheet, maybe in your Bible, and, and you can come, go through and, and see that they're just using their scripture. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. Thus says Yahweh, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? That quote that Kent used this morning. What you revere, you resemble. Whether for restoration or for ruin. If you go after worthlessness, you become worthless. Think about it. If you go after a broken cistern that holds no water, you will become dry and empty yourself. If you keep running after the pornography, if you let bitterness sit in your soul, it will waste you away. Don't let it prove itself true. What you reap, you will sow. It's going to happen. What you revere, you will resemble, whether for restoration or for ruin. So why don't you run? Run to the well of living water. Verse 11, chapter 2. Has a nation changed its gods? Why are you looking for other things to provide, to protect, to satisfy? Has a nation changed its gods even though they are not gods? Are you allowing something else to be on the throne of your heart day after day, morning after morning? My people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is about covenant relationship, calling people back. God wants to satisfy our souls. So the challenge in life is not the quest for satisfaction, it's for looking for it in the wrong places. Here's Israel Divided kingdom, Arad, in southern Judah. What do we find but a temple? A temple in southern Judah during the time of the Israelites, during the divided kingdom, and we even uncover in this temple, you see the high place where sacrifices were made, and you see a holy of holies. In this holy of holies, we find worship pillars. These are in the days of Jeremiah. And they've forsaken the Lord and gone after other things. This is the kind of stuff archaeology has, has disclosed that aligns exactly with what we're talking about here in the text. Now there's still parts of the world that have idols. 
not only parts of the world, it's part of Minneapolis, just not part of the world we're in as much. Brother David is interacting in those spheres a lot more than many of us are with people that have their Buddha, that have their beads, that think they're getting closer to God through those instruments. But we just, in our westernized culture, just make it a little more deceiving. We have our getaway, video games, rather than facing the evilness of our day. It's not that all video games are bad, it's just that it becomes an escape. Or we, our hearts are broken and so we're looking for something to satisfy and we try to get away from the pain and we give in to just wandering aimlessly on the internet, seeing things that we shouldn't see. We waste our time at our desks when we should be engaging in our work. We have 30 doctor's appointments in three months. 30 appointments my wife has had to go to in three months for our six children. I could get new eyeglasses, you may have seen that. And all of a sudden, the cares of the world rise, and rather than putting our hope where it needs to be, we begin to worry about where monies might come. It's how it happens. That's called idolatry. We're called to go overseas and we're, we're looking for income. We had uh, Lori sat up here and shared, shared with us about her, her China trip. She's, she's trying to just give it to God, but last year $5,000 less came to her and, and her, there's a need. And she's faced with a challenge. Will I worry? Will I fear? Or won't I? Will I trust in my God who is the ever-present supply or will I go after things like trusting a bank account? Idolatry. You've forsaken me and serve other gods. Chapter 11. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. Which covenant? The one that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. From the iron furnace. I took them out of the iron furnace and shaped them, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God, in order that I might confirm the oath that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. So this is covenantal literature. They are covenant enforcers. Verse 8, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. Everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And again the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What was true of the fathers is still true today. They have turned their back to the iniquities of their they've turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They've gone after other gods and served them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their forefathers. Therefore, 
Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. The prophets were preachers. And we can read these texts. Now, through Christ, the one who has said, I will not only command, but I will enable what I command. And ask him to shape us into more godly women, more godly men. Sin is sin all the time. And when we see it coming up in our soul, we need to pluck it out. By the grace of God. So I'm looking at the time and saying, I didn't get to the prophets' prayers. So I guess that's where we pick up next week. But let me pray for more grace. Father, we are we thank you that you are a God of comfort and a God, a Father of mercy. I pray that you would be near us, be our help. Thank you that you have, by your grace, given a people who have need, given us preachers. But even more, that we are a people who have been taught by you. You have taught already our hearts. You have written the law on our hearts so that we can say we know the Lord. Not fully, not perfectly. Not completely, but really. And that's something we could never say apart from Christ. Guard us, Father, from iniquity, sin, bad choices, foolishness. These are evil days that far too often cause us to move astray. Hold us fast. Keep our hearts. Thank you for the message of Jeremiah. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.